you for joining us today on CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Chupp, and today I have a question for you. Do you consider yourself to be a preferred provider of services within the healthcare discipline that you practice? Well, in today's healthcare practice environment, that question is loaded with meaning and probably, I'll have to admit, is a trick question. My guest today, Dr. Far Curlin of Duke University, will explain why in just a minute. Well, it is indeed an incredible privilege for me to welcome to the program Dr. Far Curlin. He's a hospice and palliative care physician who joined Duke University in January of 2014, where he currently holds joint appointments in the School of Medicine, including its Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and the History of Medicine. And he's also part of the Duke Divinity School, including its initiative on theology, medicine, and culture. After graduating from UNC, he completed internal medicine residency training and fellowships in both health services research and clinical ethics at the University of Chicago before joining its faculty in 2003. Dr. Curlin and his colleagues have authored numerous manuscripts published in medicine and bioethics literature, including a New England Journal of Medicine paper entitled Religion, Conscience, and Controversial Clinical practices. He's particularly concerned with the moral and spiritual dimensions of medical practice and the doctor-patient relationship, and with the moral and professional formation of physicians. His areas of expertise are medicine, medical ethics, doctor-patient relationship, religion and medicine, and conscience. Actually, at U of C, uh, Dr. Curlin founded and was co-director of the program on medicine and religion. So listeners, you can see why I'm so delighted to invite today Dr. Far Curlin. Welcome to the program, Dr. Curlin. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be on. Well, we were recently together in Dallas, Texas, at the first ever combined efforts between Dallas Theological Seminary and the Christian Legal Society, as well as CMDA, to put together a one-day summit on right of conscience and cultural change in medicine. You were one of our plenary speakers, and I think you knocked it out of the park, Far. Thank you. Your talk was entitled, Contending Conscientiously for Good Medicine. I want to take you back. What got you interested in the first place, uh, Dr. Curlin, on this subject of religion and medicine in particular? Well, I came to medicine from a Christian household in which we, as children, were asked to consider regularly what it is that we believe God was calling us to and what kind of work uh, we felt we were fitted for and challenged to think of how that work could be brought into alignment with God's calling on our lives. And medicine seemed to me the kind of work that could fit in a Christian's vocation. And as I went through training, I was struck that there were few opportunities to take seriously within the context of training how a tradition like Christianity informs what it is we're up to in the practice of medicine. There was a, a tacit and sometimes explicit assumption that religion and medicine are to be kept separate. And that always seemed to me unsatisfying and and not well-reasoned. And one of the areas that this comes out, this personal private distinction and separation comes out most strongly is in notions about physicians not letting their personal values keep them from giving patients what patients think they need or want. Mm -hmm. Well, during that uh, talk in Dallas, as you were putting forward your thesis that 
we should be protecting the way of medicine and the way that medicine has always been, by common sense, understood by those who practice it, going back even thousands of years to the Hippocratic Oath. You mentioned that there are some actual consequences of eroding conscientious objection. Uh, I believe there were four consequences you explained. Could you uh, tell our listeners about those consequences? Sure. It seems to me that, Mike, we have to not oversimplify. I think we have kind of two operating visions of what medicine is for and what standards were to be held to within medicine. And on one vision, which has been getting the upper hand over the past two generations or the past half century, on that vision, medicine is about providing healthcare services. And what makes a service a healthcare service? It's the kind of service that medical professionals are capable of providing and that the law allows them to provide. Mm -hmm. And then toward what end? Well, toward the end of satisfying the patient's choices and desires and maximizing well-being as they perceive it. I and a, a colleague, Chris Tolleson, call that the provider of services model. That's highly influential. The other model, though, is the old one, as you mentioned, long-tested, embraced in different ways by numerous different cultures, certainly by the Christian community over centuries. And in that vision, medicine is an art, like the art of agriculture, as as St. Basil put it, mm-hmm. in which we attend to a specific feature of being a creature, a specific good that is a part of our being a creature, and that is our health, where health is is a bodily norm. It's not something we make up in our heads. It's a real thing that we can observe and about which doctors can have expertise. Now, if you stick with the old vision, then it makes sense for doctors to use their judgment and to refuse to engage in practices that contradict their commitment to the patient's health. If you switch to the the newer vision of the provider of services model, then it seems like whenever a doctor uses his or her judgment and refuses to go along with what a patient requests, then he or she is basically imposing their values on patients. But if you go that direction and you follow it logically, then effectively we have to demoralize doctors. Doctors have to morally disengage because their own clinical judgment, their moral judgment is beside the point or even an obstacle to the patient getting what the patient thinks he or she needs. Demoralizing medicine is, I think, going to only put fuel on the fire of physician burnout and physician kind of detachment generally, where doctors are feeling like they're working really hard but are having less and less connection to why their work is intrinsically worthwhile. That's at least one consequence. Mm -hmm. And therefore, with that burnout and with the frustration that healthcare professionals, uh, physicians in particular, face, that they will want to seek other ways to be able to live out their professional lives without necessarily doing patient care because they're being forced to do something they don't want to do. Last year, we actually conducted for the second time a right of conscience healthcare poll of healthcare professionals, 1,700, and uh, 91% said that they would rather leave medicine than be forced to violate their deeply held religious beliefs in the way that they care for patients. I'm, that's probably not a surprise to you. Not at all. It, it's not. In fact, when the rubber meets the road, it may be that 70% of people are not yet willing to leave their livelihood. But I think whenever you invite people to basically do things they know are wrong, to do things they know are not good, you are basically undermining the kind of intrinsic motivation that keeps doctors committed to doing what is ethical, to doing what is upright, to doing what is worthwhile. And 
they either become callous and jaded mercenaries or they they find something else to do that's that's more worthwhile. At the same time we conducted uh, the poll of healthcare professionals, the uh, United States Association of Catholic Bishops also polled the public, over a thousand people, an independent poll. And 81% of those who responded in the poll of, of just the general public as representing patients said they wanted a doctor who was in alignment with their own religious moral beliefs. So it seems we have on both sides of the equation these polls that uh, the doctors want it and most patients want it. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of paradoxical in, in those who are upset about doctors like me and quote unquote imposing our values on patients would have a system in which effectively the great majority of patients could not find a physician who was committed to the moral guidelines and moral norms and moral boundaries that they count on physicians to be committed to, such as not killing patients and not harming patients intentionally. So paradoxically, by requiring physicians to be open-minded to all practices, we effectively make the diversity of practitioners reduced to such an extent that patients are not able to find the kinds of physicians they can trust. Another one of the consequences that you mentioned is that docs, if they go with the PSM or provider uh, of service model, the docs can wash their hands, uh, whatever decisions patients make. Okay, I told you the options and I told you what I recommend, but it's, it's your life. We'll go for it. Yeah, that's another one of these paradoxes. People think well, I, I want my doctor to do what I want. I want my doctor to be, philosophically, we might say, reliable. But being reliable is not the same thing as being trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And when Good a doctor point. reliably gives you what you want, then you can't hold the doctor responsible for the bad outcomes that result from that. You know, as I look back over my time in medicine, we have been problematically becoming habituated to this kind of moral detachment, washing of our hands already. For example, frequently when doctors are having family conversations around patients who are critically ill, I observe doctors are essentially saying, look, it's not my choice, it's your choice, I'm here just to give you all the information and you as a family have to make the decision, it's really not up to us. And they essentially are kind of drawing a circle of accountability around that family in which the physician is outside of the circle. And I think that is one of the consequences of us so consistently thinking and telling ourselves that we don't know what is good for another is we stopped really even thinking about or finding our, feeling ourselves responsible for seeking the good of the other. As a surgeon, a general surgeon and orthopedic surgeon in the past, I, I was intrigued by, by an article that a friend of yours uh, wrote. Uh, she actually mentions you in the article. This is Margaret Chisholm from Johns Hopkins, who was challenging uh, young or early on medical students to think about the purpose of medicine. And in that article, she said to the med students as a challenge, avoid the temptation to become technicians. And I, and I understand where she's coming from, <laughs> because as a surgeon, you know, I'd say, okay, bone broke me, fix. In, in some respects, I am a provider of a, of a procedure to fix a, a broken femur. But her challenge to those coming into medicine is resist that like the plague of becoming a technician. The way of medicine. Talk to us a little bit about the way, the purpose of medicine, what uh, Margaret was referring to, if you would, Far. Uh, sure, Mike. And I the reason I titled that talk Contending Conscientiously for Good Medicine is because 
one of the problematic developments in these disputes about conscience is that often those who are seeking to defend conscience have been put on their heels and rhetorically kind of put in the defensive posture because it seems like they're contending for their rights, yes. their personal rights of conscience, their right to not have to actually practice medicine fully, to not have to do everything that patients need, and that kind of language. But I, and that's all a false construal. The reality is if you look at all of the things that have caused controversy of doctors conscientiously refusing, they are situations in which the physician has a good reason to conclude that the practice requested of them is not consistent with the patient's health, is not conducive to the patient's health, or even directly violates and diminishes the patient's health, whether that's a sterilization procedure for physicians, whether it's a particular type of plastic surgery, whether it's hormone replacement therapy or gender transition procedures or palliative sedation to unconsciousness or, of course, assisted death. All of these are practices that violate medicine's traditional orientation to the patient's health. So the way of medicine is just our term for this tradition that, of course, is complex and, of course, has some variation over the centuries, but a tradition uh, in which we understand medicine as a practice that is has as its goal the preservation and restoration of the patient's health. And where the patient's health is something real, it's objective in that sense. It's not something we subjectively just make up. And because it's real, it's the sort of thing that we can develop some expertise about over years of practice and years of experience. And so we think that most physicians, even those who are against conscientious refusals, if they look at their own practices, what they're doing most of the time is practicing the way of medicine. Mm -hmm. You said if a bone's broke, I heal. That's a reflection of the deep intuition that we know that a broken bone is a break in the health of the patients. And if you have the means to restore that, you do. That's why when people come to the emergency room, we don't ask them, hey, uh, you know, I see that your bone is sticking out sideways out of your leg. What, what do you want us to do? You know, mm -hmm. we're here just to provide services according to your vision of what makes you have maximal well-being. The way of medicine describes this commitment to the patient's health, and it has clear boundaries of never intentionally harming, uh, which kind of goes back to that Hippocratic norm of not intentionally harming, and which has been, again, uh, supported throughout history by multiple cultures and certainly Christianity. And then, of course, has got to be guided by the broader demands of reason, including things like fairness and basically the demands of reason that medicine doesn't somehow give us a permission to violate, but instead medicine specifies in a certain way in its pursuit of a patient's health. You were asked down in Dallas, how would you recommend navigating conversations with our patients about healthcare right of conscience uh, refusals, and you've, you've mentioned there's a way to frame the conversation that's probably going to be more acceptable than, hey, I'm just protecting my rights. And talk to us a little bit about how we can minimize patient complaints, lawsuits, and loss of employment for the physician, a very practical question that came at the end of your session. Give us some advice there about promoting conscientious practice of medicine and doing it in a winsome way. The first thing to say is what we don't want to communicate to patients is that in this instance or in this domain, I can't be your doctor. I can't fulfill my obligations to you as a physician because I personally need to pull back from that for my protecting myself. That's both hard for them to accept and is 
not accurate. Instead, what we want to say, I think, up front is, listen, I am your physician, and I'm committed to being your physician. To do that, I have to act in a way that I believe is consistent with your health. Does that make sense? I will tell you to the great majority of patients, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then just explain that the thing you're asking me to do, by my best judgment, is not consistent with my commitment to you as your physician. And as a result, I can't do it. I won't do it. But I want to continue to care for you. I think the great majority of patients respect that. There will be some that will be miffed. Um, and we can't avoid that. But the great majority of patients will respect that. And what it does is it puts us back in the teaching role, which is necessary, of teaching the public what it is that they can reasonably expect of us, reminding them that we are healers. We are not just technicians for hire. And that's a critical thing for the public to start to remember. You pointed out that Physicians and other healthcare professionals, many, have been always given the right to refuse various kinds of treatments, uh, for example, prescribing antibiotics when we're quite sure that what the patient has is, uh, is a virus. And yet somehow when it comes to making recommendations that are also based on personal beliefs, there's been some dissonance there in even professional associations' perspective on that. It, it made me remember that Frequently in my practice in general surgery, patients would come to me with asymptomatic gallstones and think, even maybe the primary care physician referred them uh, or the emergency medicine uh, doc referred them. And I would say, you know, I really don't think that's what's best for you after I've had a chance to do a history and physical because you're asymptomatic. You don't have any un other underlying disease or risks here. I don't think you need the surgery. I've had a few patients uh, push me a little bit, and I said just uh, my professional opinion is you do not need your gallbladder removed. And if you'd like a second opinion, I'll be happy to do that. And so that's just natural cadence between a physician and a patient. Clearly, the patient comes out of this knowing Dr. Chupp really cares deeply about my outcome. And so I like how you've challenged us to talk about outcomes and how we care for them, not I'm protecting my rights. You're asking me to do something I really don't want to do. You're going to have to find help elsewhere. I think that's right. And the fact that most patients, probably almost all patients, respect a surgeon who tells them, listen, in my judgment, it's not good medicine for me to take out your gallbladder so I won't do it, it shows that when we have access to this memory, it's right there, that medicine is for healing and that physicians develop over years and years of experience some expertise about what is conducive to our healing. And that doesn't mean physicians aren't going to make a mistake. Therefore, for example, people always have the freedom to seek out a second opinion. But it does mean that we are not going to pursue some intervention simply because the patient believes that for them, that's the right intervention. The Future of Medicine, uh, that's a section of your uh, upcoming book. When is your book actually coming out, Far? I don't know exactly. It is under review, under second review after revisions. And so we're hopeful that will be finalized any day. I, I don't know how much COVID is affecting the editorial process, but hopefully this calendar year. And your co-author? Is Christopher Tolufson who is a professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. 
what is your perspective? What do you think about the future of medicine and the way that rights of conscience have been challenged and uh, certainly uh, have been, in some respects, uh, folks have abdicated them in certain places and we're being pushed on issues of abortion and physician-assisted suicide. Certainly our neighbors to the north in Canada have been pushed. What do you think about the U.S. and healthcare practice and the, the way of medicine with the ability to practice conscientiously? Well, I think in the short term, we've still got some troubled waters ahead of us. The cultural moment is powerful in emphasizing the notion that what is right is what each person believes is right for them. I can tell you that when I teach, I am struck again and again how strongly students have the intuition that no one can say what is right for another and that when people really want something that we're supposed to give it to them. And so I think for the short term, it's going to be uh, troubled waters. And there are a rising chorus of voices calling for physicians to be disciplined if they will not go along with whatever the powers that be say is standard uh, healthcare services. In the long term, I'm hopeful, though, because if you look back over history, you cannot point to a time when physicians killed their patients, for example that we look back to with admiration mm -hmm. as a good time for medicine. And cultural relativism and kind of moral emotivism, as the philosopher Alasdair McIntyre calls it, this kind of sense that whatever one believes is best is what is best, it actually comes up against a, a firm boundary when it encounters living human bodies that get sick. And so I think the fact that people will continue to get sick will give us a way to continually come up against the memory that health is not something we make up, that it's right there in that living body in front of us that is sick. And so in a way, I think medicine is the place where you could start to see the curve bend and see culturally people restored to a recognition that to flourish as a human being is something we can learn about and respect and not something we make up. I remember one of the, your fellow panelists down in Dallas mentioning medicine is that profession in which we still have hope, that truth and understanding that there is basic truth about what's good and what's bad, uh, that we are in that profession that holds out that hope. Yeah, you, you bring back up again that broken bone. You know, every time somebody breaks a bone, we're confronted with the reality that good and bad are real, that that broken bone is just bad and to fix it is good. And that gives us a starting point. It gives us a toehold no matter how far the culture strays. I will say this. I, I do think in the, the short and medium term, we're going to need probably to develop a self-conscious and public-facing association of physicians, hopefully internationally, who sustain a commitment to the patient's health with the boundary of never intentionally harming and much less killing our patients. And that kind of an association is something I've been in conversation with colleagues about and we hope can get launched within the next year or two. Because when there's a publicly visible association of doctors who say, we're committed to being your doctor, but here is our vision of, how, of what that means, then that will give patients access to a vision of how that differs from the kind of standard provide any services that people want mode. How are those efforts in your view going? Well, we have come up with a proposal and we frankly are actively looking for investors who would give us some startup funding to get this off the ground. And so as soon as that's in place, we will be working to roll it out. That's the state we're in right now. 
when the Catholic bishops of the U.S. did their poll of the public, their first question far was, healthcare professionals should not be forced to perform procedures against their moral beliefs. And wonderful, 83% of the public said, wow, we don't think healthcare professionals should be forced to do that. Second question was, should healthcare professionals be required to perform abortions if they have moral objections? The number drops from 83% to 58%. One in four people who took that poll had uh, some cognitive dissonance. They said we shouldn't be forcing uh, healthcare professionals to violate their conscience, but unless it involves abortion. We just talk a little bit briefly about conscientious practice of medicine in this whole hot potato, so controversial right now, so political of abortion. Yes. Well, I was thinking as you were reciting those statistics that it matters very much how a question is phrased. I know that from my own work uh, doing survey research for more than a decade. So if you ask the public something like, if there's a healthcare intervention that is legal and is allowed by the profession and a patient feels like they need it, should the doctor provide it? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you're going to have a large majority that say yes. And then if you specify it to particular procedures, you're going to get variation based on whether people themselves think of that procedure as something people should have access to and whether they think it contradicts good medicine. So abortion remains an area of deep controversy, obviously, in our country, a subject about which the public is almost evenly split. It's important to remember, though, that historically, going back to the Hippocratic tradition and to certainly Hebrew medicine before that, it is always been opposed as a practice that is not consistent with the profession of medicine. There have been abortions at every time in every culture uh, throughout history. There have always been those who practiced abortion, but Physicians as a profession have, whenever they've mentioned abortion up until the last half century, have been clear that they are opposed to it as a profession. And that includes through the Declaration of Geneva in the middle of the 20th century, which said that I will maintain utmost respect for human life from the moment of conception. So this is another area where you have a practice that some people will say, if doctors aren't doing it, they're imposing their values and they're letting personal values get in the way of good medicine. But the reality is there are good reasons to think, and I certainly am persuaded, that abortion is a practice that directly contradicts the commitments of a, of a medical professional to the patient's health. My understanding of the statistics is that at least members of, of uh, the American College of OBGYNs, uh, well over 80 percent, maybe even 90 percent, are not actually participating in doing those procedures. So clearly, it seems that even for ACOG membership, the majority are not at least not participating. Now, what, how they feel about the procedure may be a different issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I should say on that briefly, Mike, that our research shows that ACOG's membership is much more divided on the subject than ACOG policy would suggest. The sort of public policy arm of ACOG has been very consistently against any restrictions on abortion whatsoever and has repeatedly emphasize that abortion is, in their terms, a critically important healthcare service. But that does not reflect any kind of consensus among ACOG members. We know that from our own research. And can I mention one other thing, Mike, that comes to mind? Yes. That is that, uh, this is important, that there's this rhetoric of discrimination, that doctors who will not, say, practice gender transition services are discriminating against a body of people. That's what's been argued by California 
and other states that are challenging the HHS rules. But this is a bait and switch kind of or smoke and mirrors argument. Those who are objecting to these practices are not objecting to the practice in one group of people, but accepting it in another group of people. It's not the case that you're having groups of physicians argue well, we want to take care of pneumonia in African, I mean, in white patients, but we won't in African American patients. Or we will take care of HIV in a person who got it from drug use, but we won't take care of it in a person who got it from sexual encounter. Or we won't take care of people with gender dysphoria in our clinics. They can't come here. That's not what's happening. If that were happening, I think that would be deeply problematic. What's happening is that doctors are saying, look, that practice is not medicine. It's not a practice that it's needed for or even consistent with the patient's health. And so I'm not going to do it. That's to discriminate against a, a practice for being not medical, not health related. It's not to discriminate against a class of people. I would like our listeners to be able to go away from our conversation with uh, one or two of your recommended resources if they'd like to find out more. I remember you mentioned an article. I, I wrote it down. I've downloaded the PDF, an article by Leon Cass, The End of Medicine and the Pursuit of Health. Uh, would you agree that's, a, that's going to be a foundational piece to read? I certainly would. I would say that there has been no article that has been more influential in my own understanding than Leon Cass's essay, which goes back to 1973 and yet reads as if he wrote it today. It's that relevant still. He sort of foresaw the direction medicine was taking and, and what the implications would be. And I would highly recommend that to folks. And it's available on the internet. You can download it for free. It's been a delight. I'm so grateful that you joined us uh, today. I think that you are one of the leading ambassadors and spokespersons, professionals on this issue of practicing medicine, healthcare conscientiously. So we at CMDA want to wish you the best. And uh, if there is any way that we can help Dr. Farr-Curlin in your efforts to promote the practice of conscientious medicine, please let us know. Thank you, Mike. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of your hard work and the hard work of the CMDA team to uh, equip Christian clinicians and to help them sustain good medical practices, which is something the church has always affirmed is an important part of our witness and a part and part of our practices of hospitality to our neighbors. 